So in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about the way in which Parliament interacts with the executive and how the executive interacts with Parliament. As ever, we need to be specification focused. And the part of the specification we're looking at here is in Unit 2, Section 2.4, the ways in which Parliament interacts with the executive. And mentioned in the specification here are the role and significance of backbenchers in both houses, the work of select committees, the role and the significance of the opposition, and the purpose and nature of ministerial question time, including Prime Minister's questions. So the starting point for this topic has to be what should the relationship between Parliament and the executive be like? And the way we can work that out is by thinking about what Parliament wants the relationship to look like. So Parliament wants the relationship to be one in which Parliament is able to hold the government to account for its actions and for its policies. This might be the day-to-day -day running of the government, of key public services. It might be its conduct in war. It might be questioning ministers when they return from key international summits or Brexit negotiations. And this is a core part of Parliament's job in terms of how it should be interacting with the executive. It should be holding the government to account. The second thing that Parliament is going to want from this relationship is the ability to amend and oppose legislation that it disagrees with. Always remember that legislation is a key central function of what Parliament does and what the executive wants to achieve through Parliament. Of course, MPs from the governing party, currently the Conservatives, will not want to oppose or amend legislation, but this is a key role for the opposition parties. On the other hand, what does the executive want from this relationship? It wants to get its legislation through Parliament. It wants to achieve parliamentary support and a majority support for its policies so that it can enact its policies, so it can make law. The executive is going to want a relationship in which its backbenchers within Parliament are loyal and supportive of its policies and it uses the whips as a mechanism for ensuring party loyalty. And the third thing that the executive wants from Parliament is to keep and maintain a working majority in the House of Commons. It needs to continue to command the confidence of the Commons, otherwise the executive will fall and the government will lose power. So it's worth having very clear in your mind what each of the two branches of government wants from this relationship. This allows us then to explore how each branch of government will get that relationship. So how will Parliament hold the government to account for its actions and policies? Well, one of those areas is select committees. Another of those areas is question times. And make sure that you do not focus excessively on Prime Minister's questions, but broaden that out to show that other ministers face question times as well on roughly a monthly basis. And that there's a really important process as well of written questions where thousands of written questions are posed by MPs to government ministers, often on issues that their constituents have written to MPs about. So a school closure in a local constituency, the MP would write to the minister in charge of education policy and would get a response back. All of this amounts to scrutiny. So it's always disappointing when Prime Minister's questions is pitched in an essay as the only or the most important form of scrutiny. Select committees and the full range of ministerial question times are really important to cover. The second thing that Parliament is going to want from the relationship is the ability to amend and oppose legislation that it disagrees with. 
And obviously this is going to be a core function of the opposition party, the official opposition, currently the Labour Party, but also the other parties who uh, are not in government. The extent to which they can amend and oppose legislation effectively depends on the nature and the quality of the opposition. How skillful are they in how they seek to secure support for their amendments and their different proposals? And if the government has a majority, which it's likely to have, then the potential for backbenchers to challenge the government is going to be really important. It's unlikely that the opposition is going to win support for an amendment or overturn the government unless some of the government's own MPs decide not to support the government. So this is clearly going to be a variable factor as well. Backbench MPs normally support the government. And if the government has a large majority, it's going to need a lot of backbenchers to ensure that the government loses a vote. So are backbenchers, in particular government backbenchers, willing to challenge their own government? This is crucial. So then we look at what the executive wants from this relationship and how it manages to get this kind of relationship. The first thing the executive wants is to get its legislation through and to enact its policies. Now a big resource that the executive has in its favour here is its ability to control the parliamentary timetable. The majority of the agenda in Parliament is controlled by the government. The agenda, the matters for debate, the amount of time that legislation is debated for is decided by the government. This is a considerable strength. The executive also wants to maintain the loyalty and support of its backbenchers. And as mentioned before, this is a key job of the whips, notably the chief whip, who's a cabinet minister. The whips will ensure that backbenchers or try to ensure that backbenchers are encouraged to remain loyal. And the executive will hope that if any backbenchers are disloyal and vote against the government, that the executive, executive could withstand any backbench rebellions, perhaps by having a large enough majority to be able to lose the support of, say, 30 MPs and still win the vote. The final thing that the executive wants from this relationship is it absolutely has to maintain a working majority in the House of Commons. and It has to continue to command the confidence of the House of Commons. If it fails to do that, it's going to struggle to get its legislation through if it doesn't have a working majority. And if it were to lose a vote of confidence, then the government would fall. So either alone or with other parties, the executive needs to command a majority. Normally, the executive will command a majority just by virtue of the majority that's won at a general election. If it's a minority government, it's going to have to seek the support of other parties, either in a full coalition or in a confidence and supply agreement. There are two good recent examples of this, the coalition between 2010 and 2015. A combination of the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives ensured that the coalition government had a majority of 77. And after the 2017 election, the Conservatives had won 318 seats, so short of the 326 needed for an overall majority. They were able to add the votes of 10 DUP MPs to give them 328 MPs and thereby have a very slim working majority. But as we know from this period, from 2017 onwards, the party offering support and confidence and supply to the, if you like, governing party, then wields an extremely important amount of power over the executive. So then we come to some key aspects of the parliament executive relationship. The first of these is that the executive normally controls the parliamentary timetable. Although there have been some changes to this recently under Speaker Burko, who sought to try to push back on this 
and to give more powers back to backbench MPs. There are relatively few opportunities for the opposition to control the agenda and to decide what Parliament actually discusses. So the first of these opportunities are opposition days, but there are only 20 of these a year and the timing of these is in the control of the government. Normally they're evenly spread throughout the year. However, more recently, the government chose not to schedule any opposition days at all during a particularly crucial period of the Brexit um, process in Parliament. This was between 13th of November 2018 and the end of April 2019. So this is quite a limited power for opposition MPs to have, and one in which the government and the executive still plays a considerable amount of influence. The next opportunity for opposition MPs to influence the agenda is urgent questions. Now this is when opposition MPs decide to ask essentially an emergency question on something extremely topical. And it's really important to note that these tripled under Speaker John Burko during the 2017 to 19 session, where 287 urgent questions were asked until the beginning of that year of the 2019 summer recess. Nearly one for every sitting day of Parliament. That's a considerable clawing back of power and a change in the power that backbench MPs have to influence the agenda and the discussion in Parliament. The other thing that's changed during the minority government of Theresa May has been the willingness of backbench MPs to use a previously very obscure standing order, standing order number 24, to gain control of the parliamentary timetable. They did this on three important occasions. The first was to hold indicative votes on different Brexit options. So when Theresa May's EU withdrawal agreement failed to pass the Commons, different proposals were voted on by the House of Commons. What backbenchers wanted to do here was to try to see if there was a majority in Parliament for a different vision of Brexit. So other options were voted on, for example, um, a referendum, um, a form of membership which would have still seen the UK part of the common market, so-called common market 2.0. Although on the day of these indicative votes, no other vision of Brexit managed to achieve an overall majority in, in the Commons. Here again we see the influence of the Speaker, John Burko, in allowing backbench MPs to use Standing Order 24, whereby Parliament votes, or the House of Commons votes, to take control of the next day's parliamentary business. These circumstances were exceptional because the government lacked a majority. The proposal to legislate was backed by some very powerful and a large number of Conservative backbenchers. And so a majority of MPs decided to take control of the order paper and decided to pass speeded up legislation, voting to go through all of the stages of the bill on one day to pass the Cooper-Lequin Act, which compelled the Prime Minister to seek an extension to Article 50. And then a few months later, in October 2019, to pass the Ben Act, which again compelled the Prime Minister to seek an extension to Article 50. These are extremely rare examples of backbench MPs being able to seize control of the order paper, but they're very powerful examples of the extent to which it is possible in extreme circumstances for backbench MPs to severely limit the power of the Prime Minister. Just remember how reluctant Boris Johnson was to seek an extension to Article 50 in October 2019, saying famously he'd die in a ditch rather than extend Article 50, or he was forced to by Parliament. Another recent reform, part of the so-called proposals of the 
Right Committee on Reform of the House of Commons was the introduction of the Backbench Business Committee. And this means that 27 days per parliamentary session given over to debates in the main chamber, and these are chosen by a backbench business committee made up of a variety of MPs from different parties. But even here we see considerable power to the executive again, because it's the executive that determines exactly when these debates are held. Another key aspect of the parliament-executive relationship is the idea that normally the executive can enact its legislation if it has a majority. So in order to judge the different type of relationship that the executive can have with parliament, it's crucial to consider the size of the majority that the executive at that time had. So in terms of passing legislation, clearly small majority governments are going to struggle with this more. We can see examples of this with John Major and the Maastricht Bill, where he was forced to make um, the matter a vote of confidence, saying that if, the, uh, if MPs didn't support his proposals, it would amount to a matter of confidence and the government would fall. That was a measure introduced so that he could ratchet up pressure on the MPs saying, if you don't support me, the government will fall. Do you really want the government to fall? And then more recently, Theresa May's struggles in passing her Brexit legislation, which she failed to do in terms of the, uh, the withdrawal agreement itself. Large majority governments clearly tend to do better, although they're not completely immune from being defeated. Defeats are going to be very rare for a large majority government because they're going to be able to withstand backbench rebellions with perhaps up to 30 or 40 MPs, perhaps even more than that, voting against something and being able to still command enough of a majority if they have enough of a cushion. Although it is possible for them to be defeated. So a good example of this is Blair in 2005 when he tried to increase detention without charge above 28 days and was defeated in the House of Commons. Governments also have a good chance of enacting their legislation if they can assemble a majority with other parties. So sometimes governments can cope with a rebellion within their own party if other parties are supportive of that measure. So two good examples, two good examples of this again are Cameron and gay marriage in 2013. 131, more than half of the Conservative Parliamentary Party voted against it, but other parties, the Labour and the Liberal Democrats, voted in support. So Cameron was able to get the legislation through. Similarly, although this wasn't a vote on a matter of law, but the vote that Blair put to Parliament in 2003, uh, seeking Parliament's consent for military action in Iraq, 140 Labour MPs voted against. Blair was able to win the vote because other parties, notably the Conservatives, supported military action. Along with the likelihood that the government will have a majority, we have to add in too and repeat that point about the government controlling the timetable for how long legislation is debated and this really helps the government. This is called a programme motion. The programme motion means uh, that the government specifies how much time they want to allocate a particular bill to be debated for. It could be two days, it could be more than that for each stage of the legislative process. And obviously, once again, if the government has a majority, it's going to win those votes and it's going to be able to control the timetable and dictate how long a piece of legislation is voted, is discussed and debated and ultimately voted on for. Another key aspect and variable is the skills of the opposition. So just as we have to look at the relationship between Parliament and the executive and look at the size of the majority that the executive had, we can also look at the quality of the opposition as a variable factor. When the opposition is weak or divided, the executive is going to have the upper hand and have a dominant um, effect over Parliament. 
Um, a couple of examples of weak and divided oppositions would be um, Haig in between 1997 and 2001, the Conservative leader. The Conservatives had just lost a crushing election defeat in 1997 and were weak and divided. As we've looked at in voting behaviour, parties that are weak and divided tend to lose elections and then clearly once they've lost the election, they probably remain weak and divided and that hampers their ability to be effective as an opposition in Parliament. Another example of weak and divided opposition is Corbyn between 2015 and 2020. Remember that Jeremy Corbyn lost a vote of confidence of his parliamentary party. His MPs put him to a vote of confidence within the party, which he lost. So from very early in his time as leader of the opposition, it was clear that Jeremy Corbyn did not have a majority of parliamentary Labour Party MPs backing him. So it was difficult for Corbyn within the House of Commons to really command authority because it was obvious that he didn't have majority support of his own MPs. On the other hand, there are times when the opposition has been extremely strong and the executive has had a much more difficult time in Parliament. Good examples of this are Blair, 1994 to 1997, a very strong leader of the opposition against a weak and divided Conservative Party, with Blair being a very effective Commons performer. And Cameron, 2005 to 2010, presenting a very fresh and rejuvenated Conservatives against Labour who'd been in power for uh, around 10 years. Another key variable is going to be whether the executive has its own backbenchers on side. If it has its own backbenchers on side, it's likely to dominate, particularly if it has a large majority, and it's likely to have very few problems in getting its legislation through Parliament. Um, if, on the other hand, its backbenchers are not on side, if the party is factionalised, and there's a few examples of this, the Conservatives with the European Research Group, or ERG, that was a considerable faction within the Conservative Party that was able to organise itself in a way that it um, opposed the government's own legislation. And in these circumstances, what you may see is the government having to negotiate with its own backbenchers. A lot of this might happen behind the scenes with the whips trying to exert pressure on MPs. But in extreme circumstances, and we saw this during the Brexit legislation uh, with Theresa May trying to get her withdrawal agreement through, you will often see ministers actually trying to negotiate from the dispatch box, turning not towards the opposition over the dispatch box, but looking behind them, turning around and trying to negotiate, pleading with their own party to withdraw amendments or to support the government's position. And looking back at the Ben Act and the Cooper-Letwin Act, there were enough Conservative backbenchers, a core group of about 33 predominantly Remainer MPs, were really instrumental in seizing control of the Commons business to pass legislation extending Article 50 or forcing the Prime Minister to extend Article 50. Now this brings us on to Brexit, which brought the Parliament executive relationship into huge strain. I think a key part of this really was the fact that the executive was making the case that it was representing the popular will of the people as expressed through the referendum. And Parliament, particularly the opposition and Remainer MPs, were arguing that they were upholding parliamentary sovereignty and that the referendum results had indicated a desire to leave the European Union, but it had expressed no opinion on the means of doing that and the type of Brexit and future partnership agreement that the UK would have. So an important part of this relationship between 2017 and 2019 became a clash between representative and direct democracy, the executive seeing itself as representing the people and Parliament seeing itself as holding the executive to account. 
Once again, the Speaker was quite instrumental in constraining the power of the government, saying that the government could not bring back the meaningful vote for the third time without substantive change. There was an important moment where the government had been found to be in contempt of Parliament because backbench MPs had voted using an amendment to force the government to reveal the Attorney General's legal advice, which is normally kept secret. And there were two important types of backbench amendments. Backbench amendments that just sought to amend the legislation, the Brexit legislation in particular ways, many of these were successful, and the even more powerful backbench amendments whereby Parliament was forced to, or rather the executive was forced to give more of a role for Parliament and for backbenchers to take control of the order paper. Perhaps a more day-to-day -day aspect of the Parliament-Executive relationship are the wide range of opportunities to scrutinise the executive. And once again, it's really important to not just focus on Prime Minister's questions. Parliament has a wide range of opportunities to scrutinise the executive. Some of them are better than others. Prime Minister's questions, well, the weaknesses are that it's theatrical, that MPs behave badly, that it's only half an hour, that it offers limited scrutiny. It's also likely that the Prime Minister will know what questions are going to be asked by MPs from their own party. So often questions will be quite friendly questions, perhaps deliberately wanting the Prime Minister to highlight and agree with a particular increase in funding in a constituency. Those are not terribly challenging questions. Once again, we see the influence of Speaker John Burko, who's tried to increase the influence of backbenchers in Prime Minister's questions. Burko has frequently extended Prime Minister's questions when it's, over, when it's been delayed or held up with rowdiness or disturbances. Remember too that the opposition leader has a right to ask six questions and the leader of the third largest party in Parliament at the moment, the SNP, has the right to ask two questions. So there is a sort of heightened role for the leader of the opposition and the leader of the third party in the theatre of Prime Minister's question time. But there's a wider range of scrutiny that also takes place. The Liaison Committee was introduced in 2002. This is a super select committee made up of the chairs of all of the smaller select committees. It's an important reform. It grills the Prime Minister for a number of hours. The disadvantage is that it only happens twice a year. Select committees are a significant aspect of parliamentary scrutiny and a key relationship between the Parliament and the Executive because this is where Parliament holds the Executive to account in really forensic detail. So there are select committees for each government department and this allows for in-depth scrutiny. These were introduced in 1979. Membership of select committees normally reflects the balance of parties in the House of Commons. So at the moment in most select committees you tend to see rather more Conservatives than MPs from other parties. And there are some examples of select committees being quite critical of the government or leading to um, public inquiries. So the Culture, Media and Sport Committee in 2009-10 carried out a, an inquiry into press standards and privacy. This led to the Leveson Inquiry, a judge-led inquiry on press standards and privacy. The Health Select Committee in 2011 identified significant problems with the Coalition Government's Health and Social Care Bill and reforms to the NHS were amended as a result of that Select Committee's report. Equally, in 2016, the Foreign Affairs Committee did report into the UK's military action in Libya, which had some high-profile criticisms. And these Select Committee reports do get quite a lot of press attention and have influence. An often forgotten part of ministerial and um, executive scrutiny in the House of Commons are debates on ministerial statements. 
So these are much longer than Prime Minister's questions. So this might be when the Prime Minister or Minister comes back from an important international summit and the Prime Minister will give a statement on what happened at that summit and when they will then take questions from MPs for quite a long period of time. So frequently we saw Theresa May standing on the House of Commons, on the floor of the House of Commons for uh, a number of hours answering questions from MPs. So this is much longer than Prime Minister's questions. It's much more detailed. Obviously, MPs can only ask questions about the matter on which the Prime Minister or the other minister is giving a statement on. But it is an important element of scrutiny. Then we have the emerging convention of votes on military action. And clearly, if this goes against the government, this is going to be a considerable constraint on the Prime Minister and the executive's power. So in August 2013, a very important example of this was when Cameron lost the vote on military action on Syria. Cameron, as a coalition prime minister, had that notional majority of 77, but there were enough sceptical Conservative and Liberal Democrat MPs to ensure that the government was defeated and military action as a result didn't happen. Then always remember that ministers in other departments, so the Home Secretary, the Environment Secretary, the Health Secretary, will have their own oral questions on the floor of the House of Commons. These were changed in 2006 uh, because previously the questions had all been written questions, the element of surprise in those question times wasn't the same as it is in Prime Minister's questions. So it was changed in 2006 to introduce, introduce topical questions, which again gives a little bit more power to MPs and backbenchers to ask topical and more surprising and more challenging questions. Then there are written questions. Any MP can write to departments, often on behalf of constituents. So it's a key part of Parliament's job in representing its constituents. They could be asking questions about closure of children's centres, um, successful conviction rates for, for the police on drug offences in constituency. So there's often quite a nice link here between individual constituents, their MP and the minister in terms of specific issues that constituents want to raise with ministers. And the minister will write an answer to the question, it'll be on the public record, it'll be on the parliamentary record, and that is an effective form of scrutiny as well. And there are thousands of these written questions every year. Finally, a key part of the parliament executive relationship is that the executive needs a majority in the House of Commons in order to survive. And the House of Commons has a considerable amount of power here because it is in the House of Commons and not in the House of Lords that confidence votes can happen. So the last of these to happen was in January 2019. Theresa May survived a vote of confidence, but only with the support of DUP MPs. So this was her confidence and supply agreement kicking into action and, and ensuring that the government survived. With a large majority, this isn't even going to be a consideration for the government. They won't be worried about needing a majority in the House of Commons. If you have a small majority as or no majority as Theresa May did 2017 to 2019, you're going to be in kind of day-to-day -day survival mode, negotiating with your confidence and supply partners in order to stay in, in power. Equally, negotiating and trying to win the support and confidence of every single MP and every single vote in order to maintain the credibility and survival of your government. Finally, there's obviously a key relationship between the Prime Minister and Parliament in terms of the ability to call a general election. How this worked previously was that the relationship, the power relationship, was weighted hugely in favour of the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister would be able to call a general election at the time of his or her choosing without consulting Parliament. This is a considerable advantage for the Prime Minister. So the Prime Minister would be able to call an election 
when the economic situation was favourable, they wouldn't have to wait until five years after the previous general election. They could call it four years after the election when the economy was booming. So a considerable power for the Prime Minister. And this has now changed. So it changed in 2011 with the introduction of the Fixed Term Parliament Act. So the purpose of this was to ensure that the coalition government was protected for a five-year period. So it set the parliamentary term as fixed at five years and it set a mechanism for uh, calling a general election with requiring the Prime Minister to achieve a two-thirds majority in Parliament in order to call an early election. This has clearly taken considerable power away from the Prime Minister in terms of comparing it with their previous power to dissolve Parliament and be able to call an election without a vote and at a time completely of their choosing. And in 2019 this was brought into focus with Boris Johnson having considerable difficulty in calling a general election. He couldn't achieve a two-thirds majority in favour. He didn't have the support of the opposition parties. But the Prime Minister got around this by legislating to overrule the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, drafting a very short piece of legislation, the Early Parliamentary General Election Act 2019, which was fast-tracked through, fast through Parliament. This is a good example of Parliament being able to make and unmake any law, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act 2011 was not repealed, but this legislation allowed for an election to take place on the 12th of December 2019. So those are some of the key talking points, really, in the relationship between Parliament and the Executive. Likely questions could include the extent to which Parliament is able to hold the Executive to account, the extent to which the relationship between Parliament and the Executive has changed. So I hope that's been helpful.